with me as we read the Word of God. And we will be reading from Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. And I just got the, you messed up, the kids got to go <laughs> sign. So kids, you are dismissed to core kids where you will not have to hear me preach. But when you are in middle school, you will every Wednesday. I got to put my phone on silent. That would be a great idea. All right. When you are there, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. When you are there, say so. All right. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Y'all may be seated. Y'all were like, yes, this is, Bishop didn't, he, we didn't do a whole chapter like Bishop does, no. It's because I, I, want, I want you to do the Sunday morning aerobics up and down, get your blood flowing, see if I can get your attention focused. That's what I do with the youth. Uh, um, most of y'all know, uh, I am a, just recently became a father, um, and uh, I have to say, I had a... After a lot of discussions, I was at first hesitant to, to have a kid. Not that I was not going to have a kid. I was just like, I'm not ready for this. Um, and it wasn't, you know, I would make up the excuses. There's, there's not enough money. The budget's not there. And, of course, people like, people have kids with nothing. Like, yeah, people figure it out. Like, you know, I would throw every single excuse out there not to have a kid. And it wasn't until I had a kid that I actually realized why I was so scared. I didn't know how to be a father. And for anyone who's ever had any extended conversation, an extended conversation is like more than two minutes. Y'all know that I'm extremely technical, uh, very data-driven, and I, I, won't, I won't make a claim unless I know I can back it up. And uh, it was tough for me to say, like, I'm going to be a dad and be happy about it because I had no experience, no data. And, yes, I, I, I had, a, I had my, my dad's a pastor, just in case, for anyone who doesn't know. Um, and I have great examples in this church, but I've, I've never been through the thick of it. So it's tough because I can't walk in your shoes. I, I just hear what everyone's telling me, and, and uh, I was like, I, I, don't think I, I don't think I can do this. Um, even, even when Enzo was born, everyone, everyone was like, yo, you're a dad now, and I'm like, I still don't feel like a dad. I just feel like I got extra responsibilities. I don't, you know, you know like, I just got to make sure that he keeps breathing. You know, he can't die. That's, that's my job right now, <laughs> whatever it is. This, and then, you know, I read every book, too. I read, like, the kids do come with training manuals. You can be a good parent. I read every book everyone gave me. And then when Enzo showed up, none of that worked. I just want to tell you, like, every, every father who was like, I didn't read any of the books, you're okay. Because I read them all, and they didn't help. All right? So you're, you're, all y'all are good. Um, and, and here's what I realized. Um, you know, I, I started digging into the Bible, and I did the, you know, the, the thing that every modern Christian does. When something happens in their life, they go to Google. Right, that's what, that's what everyone does. 
what does the Bible say about being a father? Boom, all the verses show up. And there are surprisingly not as many verses as you would think. And it's not like a bullet-pointed list. But what I did realize is that the entire Bible cover to cover is an example of how to be a good father. Because y'all know who's a good father? God. And then it clicked in my head. Not that I don't need examples. Examples are great. And we'll get into why being a good father example is extremely important. But I realized that it wasn't an absolute necessity. And it's why you can have people who come from fatherless homes who end up being great fathers. Because it all comes down to a very basic function that every single human being is born with and has no choice, the ability to love. So... When I came across Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I've been preparing this for a while, and mainly because I've been, I've been researching how to be a good dad according to what the Bible says. But the first thing I did was turn to the greats in the Bible. I, I turned to David. I turned to Samuel. I turned to all these amazing people in the Bible who were dads, and I realized something. Just, they may have been greats, but they weren't the dads I thought they were. And it kind of hurt. Uh, that, you know, and then I went, to the, I went to the patriarch, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm like, y'all messed up. Like, I don't even know how Israel made it through with, with you guys being dads. Like, and I, I will be honest. I started to kind of look at modern Christianity and see a lot of the, you know, everyone knows, like, the, the whole... Um, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, the stereotype of pastor's kids, right? There was even a show about it, pastor's kids. And, and, and y'all can look it up. It is the craziest thing, an entire show about how pastor's kids are the most rebellious kids on the planet. And they do the craziest things, and then the pastors are just complaining about their kids. And I'm like, man, they're just, they're just literally like what we see in the Bible, these great kings with these horrible kids. Almost like, I was like, yo, mama, I think I should step down from being a youth minister because what if something happened to Enzo? It's the curse, you know? But you would think the people who are most, like, head first into the Bible would get through the most simple statement. By the way, like Solomon, who, who wrote most of Proverbs, right, he had some, some crazy sons, too. And he's the one who wrote, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. So, I'm not going to be bulleting you guys with scriptures. But we're actually going to go through a very brief walk through the history of Israel. And we're going to see how your choices, my choices, as Children, as parents, shape entire generations. You may think that you lying to your kid. You may think that you protecting them from some evil is the right choice. Because you don't get to see what happens generations to come. You know where you get to see that? 
in the Bible. And there's nothing new under the sun. These people deal with the same human nature that you guys deal with. My main point for you guys today is this. And if there's anything I want you to take home, it is this right here. Our beliefs, desires, and identity formulate how we will raise our children and how our children make decisions. Beliefs, desires, and identity. And I think a real simple way to put this right, believe in God, desire God, make God your identity, and you shouldn't have a problem, right? Some of y'all believe in him. Some of y'all desires are all mixed up. You desire him on Sunday, but then Monday, y'all got to get to work, right? And then your identity, sometimes our identity easily gets mixed up in our career and stuff like that. And then we have even problems showing people that we're Christians wherever it is that we go. So sometimes we got beliefs locked down, and you will see how if you only have one of these, you can do a lot of damage raising a child. You need all three beliefs, desire, and identity for Christ, for God, for his mission. Not just one of them. So, um, I think in your outlines, Bishop, Bishop, Bishop wrote this beautiful, I, I, wish, I, I wish I could have said I wrote it, but I think in your outlines, it's in there. Um, um, if it's not, uh, I'm sorry, but I think, I think it made it in. I didn't get a chance to look at it. But Bishop wrote this. this I'm not going to read it to you guys. Um, but there are some serious questions in there that I want you guys to look over um, at the end of the service. That way you have some homework and that these outlines, those don't just end up in your car. All right? And, and you'll never see them again. But really, really look them over. There's some serious questions in there. And what's important is that we don't look at our youth as this is the next gen. This is the next church. No, no, let me tell you what. The day they were born, they were here today, right? They are today. They can serve today. And you'll see there are some young kings, seven years old, eight years old, 17-year-olds. I mean, if they, were, if they had kings when they were eight, then that means your eight-year-olds are ready to serve. I want you to know that because, it, and it's not like these seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds were just like, oh, they came of age, let's turn them into a king. At the age of one, they were already getting prayed for and they were already getting trained. So it begs the question, what are you doing with your kids? And I may sound, I'm not trying to tell anyone how to raise their kids. I'm just trying to let you know that the Bible is trying to tell you how to raise your kids. That's it. All right, because this is, this is as much for me. I, I get the benefit of saying I haven't really even started yet. I'm only, I'm only eight and a half months in, right? So <laughs> I haven't messed up yet. I feel I haven't messed up yet, right? <laughs> so, um, but your kids are here today. They're part of the church today. Everything that you hear, they should hear. And it's tough to say, like, because, and you'll hear at the end, at the end of my preaching, I'm going to have this little panel, and you'll hear some of the experience of the youth directly from them. And you almost want to say, I want to protect them from the world. I want to keep them from all this evil. But what, is, what do we know? 
that we are in the world, but not of it. And you know where your kids are? In the world. And their world is online. It's digital. It's YouTube. It's Facebook. It's TikTok. It's all of that stuff that you don't see. You want to talk about, all right, spiritual warfare, the whole unseen battle? Let me tell you something that's an unseen battle that's, that you don't see every day. Those kids scrolling on their phones. You don't see that war going on. You don't see the spirits around them trying to battle for their souls as they're scrolling through TikTok. Look at their YouTube history. Look at their TikTok history. And that will tell you who they are. Do that for yourself too because that's going to tell you who you are. Your kids, they can make decisions that can alter the course of their lives and the lives of others. So don't treat them just like little kids in your house that are a responsibility for you to just take care of. Raise them to change the generations at the age of eight years old. Okay, my first point, and this was also my first wake-up call in terms of the dads in the Bible. Point one, selfless dedication to God produces God-fearing generations. So the first thing that we're going to go through is the very last judge in the Bible. We're going to go from Samuel today all the way through the end of all the kings of Judah. I'm, I'm not going to talk about the kings of Israel. For anyone who knows about that whole nonsense, the kings of Israel, it's a bunch of evil mess there, right? Um, so we're going to stick with the kings of Judah today. It's also a better timeline. And we're going to walk through Samuel's decisions and how each decisions of the kings following propagate and eventually come to the downfall of Israel. So Samuel's mom dedicated him before he was even in the womb. So Samuel's parents, uh, his dad had two wives. I'm not going to throw a bunch of names at you guys. This is going to be like a story day. You're going to love it, right? His, his dad had two wives, and one wife had all the kids, and one wife had zero kids. She was barren. So they... they typically would go and, and pray um, where at, at the temple in Shiloh. And one day she was there and she was like, God, if you give me a kid, I will dedicate him as a Nazarite. And there are two main types of Nazarites that you will see in the Bible. There are your temporal Nazarites and then your, there are your permanent ones. If you guys can think of some, if just for an example of a permanent one, Samson's a permanent one, right? His whole life he was considered a Nazarite. Um, but the reason why that's important is they, as a Nazarite, dedicate their entire lives in service of God. They have a couple of restrictions. I'm not going to go through everything. And there's also some, a bunch of, you know, different opinions that you'll find on what different restrictions were for different Nazarites and all this stuff. But they had specific restrictions to maintain their sacredness in regards to being dedicated unto God. And here is another important thing. For those of you guys who went through letters to the church, I think it was chapter 2, chapter 3, um, where, we, they talk, where it talks about the sacredness of God. Nazarites treat God as the most sacred thing. They stay away. That All their extra restrictions, they treat that thing like if they do that, they die type deal. So... Samuel's mom says, I will dedicate him as a Nazarite, which also means that she knows what she's saying. The minute he's born, after he's weaned off, 
She don't get to see him no more. She, gets, she got to visit him a couple of times, but basically his life is dedicated to God. And that's what happens. So Samuel's growing up, and he's being taught under the, the, the tutelage of the judge before him, which is uh, Eli. And God speaks to him. He lets him know, hey, your sons are corrupt. Uh, Eli's sons are corrupt. Um, and a whole bunch of stuff happens, and eventually... His, his sons die, and then Eli dies. I'm not going to go into that. But Samuel becomes the next judge. And here's something that's really cool that we see about Samuel. He wasn't like your typical judge. He traveled everywhere in Israel. Right? And, but when he became a judge, uh, Israel was in a, in, in a place where they were being occupied by the Philistines. Right? So there, there needed to be sort of like this shift. And Samuel was the type of judge whose life was always on foot. And some scholars think that the reason why he aged so quickly is because the man was always walking. He was, the sun was always beating on him because he was always traveling everywhere. He didn't just hole up in one spot. He moved. And it's beautiful because when you see Samuel's ministry, when you see his work as a judge, you really see what God had originally intended for the judges to be, right? Israel originally did not have kings. They had judges all across the land. There were like smaller judges and then tribe leaders, and then there was the judge, right? You can consider Samuel like the Supreme Court, except he's not corrupt, right? <laughs> that may have either hit home really well or really bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it was totally different the way decisions were made because the judge was someone who had their life dedicated to God. And it, the judge wasn't necessarily someone who, like, their sons would take over, right? If, and you see this a couple of times, right? Sons would take over. Israel was like, no, nah, these, these, these guys ain't cutting it. We got a, a, God will bring a new judge, right? It was solely based on God leading the nation. And Samuel did that and took that responsibility super well. So he goes, he lives his life, he's a great judge, they, 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 they drive the Philistines out, all this great stuff. You read all this great stuff about Samuel, Samuel's amazing, he, he confronts a lot of people, things change. But one thing that's important is that Israel got back to a true heart of God. A true heart for their God. They started honoring their traditions, and it was Samuel's desire to please God and to do his work that did that. He feared God above all else, and he changed a generation. Here's something that's crazy when you get to the end of Samuel's life. It says that Samuel appointed his two sons as his, I guess you can say, next as the next judges, right? And... So in that whole succession process, they were okay at first, but then after some time, Israel started complaining about them because they started taking bribes. They started being corrupt, right? And then we got the corrupt Supreme Court, right? That's, that's what people started complaining. And then they used that as an excuse to come to Samuel and say, yo, give us a king. And that is the greatest slap in the face to God. That is the greatest. I mean, Samuel got upset. God got upset, but then God was like, give it to him. He gave him the warnings, listen, you get a king, you won't get extra taxes. They're going to send you to war, and they don't care what family you're from because they need an army. 
They're going to do all this stuff, and you tribes won't have a say. Because the king is going to say, we need to go here, we need to do this, and y'all got to listen to him. They didn't, Israel did not realize what they had. And I hear that a lot here. I mean, I have a lot of, a lot of my colleagues who tell me, man, the way Europe runs things, the way Germany runs things, the way blah, 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 their policies this, their policies that. I don't know why America can't get on. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, you're right. United States need to get some stuff. But you also, y'all need to realize where your blessings lie as well. A bishop, a bishop has said this up there. We like to vote for the politicians that we can complain about. Sometimes we say we vote for the lessers of evil and all this stuff. Let me tell you something that we see here and that you'll see when it comes to Samuel. The reason why we have such corrupt politicians is because they ain't getting raised right. It's their father's, grandfather's, and so on's fault as to how we got to this point. Samuel sees this coming, and he warns them. But here's something that had me questioning. One of the greatest judges had some corrupt sons. How did that happen? Now, there are tons of speculations, and I'm going to throw them all out there for you guys, right? And, and here's why I want to say this. Because sometimes I looked at Samuel as like, you can't touch the dude. Same way I looked at Moses, like, you can't touch the dude. The only person that could touch him is God because apparently he, he smacked a rock with a stick instead of speaking to it. And that was like his only sin, right? That, that's the way I felt about Samuel. Like, you can't touch this dude. But he had some corrupt sons. How did that happen? And they weren't like young bucks, right? They weren't like trained up. Like he wasn't still training them. They started off well and they got corrupt. So let me tell you the two biggest speculations. One is the thought is Samuel did a good job. And what happened is, is when they came into power, the power got to them. And let me tell you something, looking at your own way of raising your kids. Sometimes you can instill in them the word of God. You can do everything right. They can still make some messed up decisions. You know how I know? Because God didn't do anything wrong, and we still a bunch of sinners. So that's one. The other is that Samuel was traveling so much. He was doing so much that he didn't have time to properly raise his kids. And instead of being able to find a good judge, because no, no matter where he went, he wasn't able to find a good successor, he appointed his sons almost in the meantime, and his sons did a horrible job. And because they didn't have a true father figure in place, even though Samuel was a great man, and I want you guys to know that, just because you are a great man doing great things, doing great things for the, for the glory of God, you could still be a messed up parent. And when we get to King David, you won't see that. It's crazy. It's always funny. He's the heart of God. He, he is a, he's a heart after God, but, man, he did some weird stuff. But, so, that made me look at this. I'm not trying to blame Samuel. I'm not trying to, you know, bring down Samuel's status as a judge or anything like that. But it put it into light how important 
it is when we have kids. Whether Samuel was negligent or whether Samuel did his job, either way you look at it, your kids have a choice to make. And you get to sit on the other side and say, Lord, I did everything I could. I did everything I could, and they're making these decisions. Or, Father, forgive me for my laziness when it came to being a good father or a good mother. You got to own up to it either way. I can't actually tell you what side of the fence I'm on there. But here's what I can tell you. Whatever happened in, in, in regards to him raising his kids led to a king being put in place. Now, I'm going to skip Saul because Saul messed up, right? So he, he anointed Saul. Saul messed up. And uh, I'm going to jump straight to David because that's where this whole lineage starts. So, before I jump into that, I want to, this is what happens when I'm looking at my notes backwards. Um, uh, before I jump into that, one thing that's important is that Samuel trained up a generation of Israelites who love God. So, despite the king, he gave one warning. The king is not the law of the land, that's God. If the king ever does anything against God, you guys are to bring up the justice. They, you were supposed to keep them accountable for your word. And that was the difference between the kingship of other lands where the king's word was law. It was totally different in Israel. There was a law that the king needed to abide by. And the entirety of the nation was supposed to keep that king accountable. Very different approach. Israel didn't stick to that, but that was what Samuel left as a legacy. And David took that seriously. So, my second point, teachings must turn into resilience if we want to avoid generational degradation. One thing that Samuel did super well was teach, instruct, and train. When he went somewhere, he left people in charge that could handle it. He didn't just teach which is one of my big issues with, like, conferences, not necessarily, like, just in general. Like, most conferences, you go to them, and any, like, you can be, you can be a, a physicist, you can be, a, a, you know, part of the church, you can be a businessman, you can, whatever. You go to these conferences, they give you this, like, information download, and then you're like, what do I do with this? And we're going to see this with the kings. Sometimes they were taught something. But it wasn't really instilled in them and made them resilient when it came to their approach to God, their approach to fearing God. And because there was no movement, because there was no practice, we just see these kings fall. So I want to start with David. And y'all know David, David and Goliath, all these great things, the greatest king, all these, all these great things. But he had three crazy sons, Ammon, Absalom, and Forgive me for, for butchering these names. And Adonijah. Um, and these all rebelled against David. And early, early manuscripts in the Bible say that David didn't discipline them. You would think that the great warrior king of Israel, David, the one who took armies and conquered nations, would be able to discipline his kids. 
whether it was because he was too scared because he loved him or because it was his firstborn and he didn't, he didn't, but it literally specifically calls him out for not being able to discipline his kids to the point where they rebelled against him. And he was a great king. Yet, when it came to him as a father figure, in these cases, they felt left out. So, David is someone who did right, but for now, let's just call him not the best father figure, right? And that's, that's kind of tough for me to say, and I, I'm sure I'll get, I'll get reprimanded if I'm absolutely wrong. But um, let's just call him not the best father figure. Then there's Solomon, his son, right? Solomon is different, though, when it came to David. Solomon made sh- uh, David made sure that Solomon was read up, that he was instructed in the ways of the law, and that he would be his successor. Out of all of his kids, he chose Solomon, and he was the one who got training. But the rest of his sons, for whatever reason, it didn't happen. But Solomon got it, and Solomon, for a lot of y'all know, like, you know, he started right, and this is where it gets crazy. He had many wives, and what he did to please some of his wives who were foreigners was install altars to Baal, Asherim, a whole bunch of other idols in these high places. So basically, they're man-made elevations, hills, and then you would put the altar on top of that. So no matter where you are, you could see it. And he, would install, he installed them just outside of Jerusalem. And he would worship there as well. The man who was trained, the man who was the wisest of them all, the man who said, train up a child in the way he should go, and he, when, he, when he is old, he will not depart from it, he gave in. And this starts pouring into the rest of Israel. You have Rehoboam, who is the son of Solomon, and he does evil. Why do you think he's doing evil? Well, he had a great example for how to do evil. Solomon may have been great at the start, but he left an evil legacy. And Rehoboam, he did some good stuff. Matter of fact, he did some great stuff in terms of being a warrior king. He was a great king. He actually brought a lot of economic development to Israel. But when it came to the law, he left it hanging. And when it came to training his sons... A big practice that was done in Israel was something called co-regency. was basically like, let's say I got five years left of my, of my kingship. I would have my son rule with me so that I can train him. He didn't necessarily do, he didn't do that. It was like he left and then his son, like, you're next. That's it. Throwing you into the fire. There was no training done. His son did evil. Worse than him. So you have this Solomon's last, you know, let's call it almost the last half where he's doing evil. Then you have another evil king. Then you have another evil king because these guys are being horrible, horrible father figures. And they're giving in to their own desires. They have belief in God. They know the law. And what they're doing is they're practicing the law within Jerusalem but keeping their desires just outside. They say their identity is in Christ, well, in God, when they're in Jerusalem. 
But then they switch what their identity is the minute they're outside those walls. How many of you guys do that in your own life? In here, on Wednesday, I'm the greatest Christian ever. And I, I, it hurt. It hurt me to hear this. I was talking to a very old friend of mine, very good friend of mine. He's in D.C. now, and I was, I was catching up with him. And he goes, are you still Christian on Wednesdays? And I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like that because he wanted, he, wanted he wanted to call me on a Wednesday. So he asked me if I was still Christian on Wednesdays. Mind you, this guy had to hear the Bible from me all the time. And I've always wanted him to come to church because I feel like this dude is the most intelligent dude I've ever met. I want him to dive deep into the Bible because I want to know what his thoughts are. And I want him to come to Christ, not just because I don't want to see him perish, but because I also want to see what his talents could do for the body as well. So I, but he said that to me and it hurt because I was like, man, how many of us are just Christian on Wednesdays? Because that, that, that hurt me really hard. Like it, I thought about it for a while. I was like, man, I must, I must not be Christian on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. Saturday, I'm prepping for Sunday. So you can call me Christian on Saturday and Sunday just in the morning. Because I'm tired after that. <laughs> but that's what happened. They had beliefs. They didn't have a desire, truly. And their identity was all mixed up. Then, by some miracle, Asa shows up, King, King Asa, and he does right. He cleans up Jerusalem. He, he, he drives out all this prostitution that was going on. He does all these great things, cleaning them up. But he doesn't remove the high places outside Jerusalem. So it says he did right in the eyes of the Lord, but he still kept his identity, what he wanted it to be outside of Jerusalem. Moving on to the next king, Asa did something that all the kings should be doing, co-regency. He had his son trained up with him, and his son Jehoshaphat did even better. He did right. Now, he still left the high places out there, but he cleaned up even more inside of Jerusalem. And he went a step further and actually tried to make peace with Israel. Israel and Judah are divided. They're two separate nations, but one. It's messed up. But he made peace with them after years and years of war. But something happens again. You guys want to know what it is? Good king. Desire for God, bad father. His son does evil. He marries someone from the Israelite king because there was a treaty in place that one of the sons of Judah had to marry one of the daughters of Israel. But Jeroham wanted to be king so bad he killed his six brothers so that he would be the only successor. Somehow, he felt like he wasn't going to be taken care of or he was so power hungry, he decided to kill all remaining heirs so that he would be the only one. He did evil. This spills into um, his son who does evil. He reigned, his son only reigned for a year because then his mom, uh, Athalia, which is the, 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 the woman from Israel that, they, that uh, Jeroham married, She's like, you know what? I want to be queen. She wipes, wipes out everybody like that, is, that could be a potential heir 
on the king of, on the Israel side and on the Judah side. So that she's literally the only remaining person left that could have some type of claim to the throne. So we have the first and only queen of Judah. And she reigned for six years. What she did not know is when she was going around and assassinating and ordering assassinations of everyone, her sister saved one remaining heir. And this man's name is Joash. And the priest at the time took him in at the age of one and hid him for six years and trained him in the ways of the law. And at the age of seven, the youngest king of Judah, Joash, became king. And his grandmother tried to kill him. I don't know of anyone who watches like these weird telenovelas and stuff like that. That drama crazy. I don't know how anyone can keep up with that. Y'all want to read some real drama? Dive into Kings. That is some crazy stuff. Imagine being Joash where nobody in your family wants you. Your grandmother killed your dad, your brothers, your sister. Everyone's, everyone's gone. And you're Joash and you're seven years old. And the priest who, wrote, who, who raised him, he didn't play games either. He let him know, everyone wants you dead. I only got 100 soldiers, soldiers that can actually guard you for the next six years, maybe. Imagine growing up in that type of an environment. I'll tell you what, I would have a very, very poor outlook on humanity. I wouldn't trust anybody. And here's what we actually see. The circumstances of your upbringing shape the way you see the world around you. You're going to see that with Joash. The way I was raised, I didn't have a choice in it. The way you were raised, you didn't have a choice in it. You, didn't, you, you absolutely don't. Whether you were brought up with a lot of money, you were brought up with a good dad, you were brought up with a messed up dad or a good mother or a messed up mother, or nowadays, you could be getting brought up where you have two dads or two moms. I, you have no choice in how you got placed, where you got placed, and who your fathers and mothers were going to be. But that doesn't exempt you from being someone who desires God, believes in God, and can have an identity in God. And what we see with Joash is that he did not trust anybody. As long and for the days that, his, that the priest that raised him was alive, he did right. The minute that guy died, he had nobody he could trust, and he defaulted to what, what the Bible calls the princes of Judah, basically the friends around him. And he was like, whatever you, whatever you guys think we should do, let's do it. He didn't have a real desire for God. His identity was in the people who raised him. His beliefs weren't his own. They were his priests. And when his priest wasn't there, he had no belief, no desire, no identity, and he went to the next thing. Let me tell you what happens to our kids. The same exact thing. Sometimes their beliefs are yours. Sometimes their identity are yours. And you think they're good for as long as you're there. As long as you're there next to them, you have the most well-behaved Christian kid on the planet. 
the minute you put them in school, there's somebody else. And generally, that happens when we have a motive. And it took me some time to dive into this, but the priest that raised them had a motive. And he may have truly loved Joash, but in reality, he wanted that queen dethroned. Do you want your kids to have their identity in Christ, or do you want your kids to be a good reflection of you? You want them to be image bearers of God, not image bearers of you. And I'll get to this in the end, but the Bible says parents should take care of their children. Children should not have to save up to take care of their parents. They're not your bank account in the future either. And I have seen that a lot. I've, I've, I've had a lot of people tell me that, like, yo, when my kid becomes famous or when my kid starts making money and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you can't rely on your kids. They're going to do their own thing. But what are you training your kids up to be? Because if you're just putting them in a box and not listening to them and not speaking to them and not understanding who they are, because let me tell you something, whether you just think it's a thought or not, they are a person, they have feelings, they have emotions, don't just talk to them like you're some king or queen. Talk to them as a parent. See them. As a potential brother and sister in Christ who can cause you to grow. Because if not, you'll just limit them. Or their identity is just going to be you. And when you're not there anymore, who knows where they're going to put their identity. So that's what happens when teachings do not turn into resilience. If your teachings are great and solid, but your kids are not resilient, the minute they're in the world... They're taken away. And when that keeps happening, each generation gets further and further and further and further from Christ. But let me tell you, even if that does happen, there's still hope. My third point, God's word can pierce through all and is the ultimate authority. So let me tell you what happens after Joash. I'm going to run through this. It's going to be pretty easy to keep, keep, uh, keep track. Trust me. Um, Amaziah, the next one. He did right because he, he kind of took after Joash and was like, I'm going to do right based off what he did when the priest was around. And he removed all the evil. He cleaned up Jerusalem. But again, he left the high places. The high places have been there since Solomon. They're still there. Then there's his son. He did right. He left the high places. You see that Israel has still not given up their identity outside of Jerusalem. Then you have his son, the next king, who starts to do evil. And this guy, the king Ahaz, does crazy. Remember, the high places have been there the entire time. This now starts to pour inside of Jerusalem. After many years since Solomon, right, Israel never gave up their identity. And let me put it this way. Wait, there's this big thing, right, big term that's used nowadays, racism. 
racist. Almost to the point where kids use it as a joke. You say something and they're like, ah, that's racist. That's racist. This is racist. Don't say that. That's racist. I know because I've had that happen to me with your kids. I'll say something and they're like, ah, that's racist. And I'm like, that was, that was the least racist thing I think I've ever said in my life. Right? Let me, let me tell you how something like that came to be. Right? It's, it's pretty simple. There was a lot of hatred for a people group that became so deep-rooted that it spills into the generation following and the generation following and the generation following. Till now, we have people that hate a people group and they don't even know why. And they may have a legitimate reason. But maybe that people group never actually did anything to them. But because of their great, 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 great grandfathers and grandmothers of what they went through, they have hatred. You know the, one of the biggest moments where we saw that hatred spill in and cause a global catastrophe? World War II. You have Hitler who hated a people group. And to be honest, when you first look at it, I don't know why. When you dive deep, it wasn't just something that happened to him personally. It's something that was indoctrinated into his grandfather, into his grandfather, and into his grandfather through the ages where now you have this deep-rooted hatred. Because identity, let me tell you something, identity is not something that can be changed in a split moment unless it has something to do with Christ. Other than that, your identity is going to be based on your upbringing and your parents' upbringings and your parents' upbringings. And you slowly have to chip away at the things that you are realizing are wrong and then train, train your kids to not be as racist as they were. And then they have to train their kids to be not, not as racist as we are. When you do the math, from when racism started in the United States, it would take 680 years if everyone did their job. To get rid of racism entirely, according to some psychologists who probably got their math wrong. <laughs> you want to get rid of it right away? Start loving the way the Bible says to. Pretty simple. That's the only way you're going to cut that out. Other than that, the work is on us. So here's what happens. Israel never gave up. Judah never gave up their identity. It's, it's always been there. These high places have been there. Eventually spills inside of Jerusalem. Then you get this, kid, this king who did so much evil that God says, I'm done with you guys. Y'all are getting exiled. Not right now, but it's going to happen. This king also is the king who reigned the longest in all of Judah. He reigned 55 years. He sacrificed his own sons to idols. He shifted around the altars inside of the temple so that he can give offerings to his gods in the temple of Jerusalem. He did this for 55 years. It was so bad, God, God gave up on Israel. His son, what do you think he did? Same thing. Then I want to fast forward all the way to... Josiah, he became king at eight years old. And this 
what is someone I consider technically the last king of Judah. Even though he's not, I consider him the last king. This, out of all this evil that's going on, right, there's a whole bunch of evil. There's some good kings, like, after, after Ahaz, but I'm, I'm, I'm skipping them because the evil was still there. We get to Josiah, and after all this evil, the temple has been desecrated, and Josiah, after 18 years, says, let's, let's, let's start rebuilding the temple. Let's start, let's start getting things right. And he was someone who sought the Lord. When they found the book of the law, which had not been read in who knows how many years, 100 plus years, and he heard it, he tore his robe. He heard God's law, and he said, oh, my goodness, we're all going to die. And it wasn't from a place of, I need to save my people. It was from a place of, we have offended God. And this is why I thought for anyone who went through letters to the church and you guys talked about the sacredness of God, this is where that comes important, like really, really in key, because Sometimes we look at the church as the things I got to do. I, I'm a minister of the youth. I got to make sure I do this. I was in charge of Rock the Block. I got to make sure I do that. Like, it's just the things that I got to do. And oh my goodness, if I don't do this, I'm going to mess things up. And even I can get into the thick of it and forget, am I really doing this for God? Or am I really offend- do, I, do I really understand that I could be offending God? It wasn't just about the impending doom, which God said is not going away. After he sought the prophets, God's like, listen, it's going to be okay while you're a king. But after that, it's done. He tore his robe. He took the word of the law so seriously. He removed the high places. He cleaned everything up. He transformed Israel. They got back to their roots. They started serving God the way they were supposed to. They did everything right in the sight of God he brought Israel back. Y'all want to talk about a revival? That was a nationwide revival for Israel. It wasn't just the king going around and cleaning things up. Tribe leaders were cleaning things up. Parents were cleaning things up. Everybody was getting their life right. Because God's word pierced their hearts. And they allowed it. To pierce their hearts. That's the power of God's word. And when it comes to your kids, when you feel like it's hopeless, let me tell you something that's not hopeless. The Bible. That is not hopeless. That can pierce their hearts. Your words cannot. I'm going to tell you that right now. And you know how I know? Because you guys will be telling me, my kids, blank, 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 and blank. And they're so good at this. And then I, I, you know, I will hear them. (laughs) <laughs> on Wednesday, and I'm like, who did you say your kid was? Are you sure? You know why? Because your words can't pierce their hearts. What they can do is probably just massage the outside. That's about it. But if you're raising your child with the word of God from the get-go, their heart is constantly getting pierced. But if you're raising them with just whatever knowledge you have from what Bishop taught on Sunday... <laughs> it's not going to suffice. And you're just going to have to pray and trust the Lord. Give them the word of God. Train them with the word of God. 
if kids can be kings at 7 and 8 years old and 17 years old and 16 years old, we got a whole bunch of young kings, then your kids can be gospel bringers. They can be evangelists. They can be intercessors. They can be so much more if you let the word of God train them and don't limit them with your mind. Don't limit them with your culture. Don't limit them with your biases. Let God's love be the one that trains them up. Josiah was this great king, but his sons did evil in the sight of the Lord. Their hearts were hardened. Babylon comes in, wipes them out. But let me tell you something that Josiah did in that reform. You know what prophets come from Josiah's generation? Daniel. Biggest one. If it was not for Josiah's radical change of Israel, when they went, when they would have gone into Babylon, I don't even know if we would have a Daniel. He changed the generation. And that caused for there to be an anchor when Israel ceased to be a nation. Just because you train your kids right, just because we do everything right, does not mean life is going to have the brightest and greatest outlook. You could be sending your kid, and God may have a plan to send them straight into the fray. Death is at their doorstep every day. But you don't train them to survive. You don't train them to just make it. You don't train them to be economically successful. You train them to do the will of God. Because Babylon is at our doorstep too. And if we were to go into exile, I want to know that our kids, they don't need us. Daniel stood up. All the prophets of Daniel's generation, they stood up to the king. Well, not all of them, but the good ones did. And that's the importance of God's word. That's the importance of letting your kid be trained by the word of God and not by your word. Because you're going to mess up. I'm going to mess up. I'll tell you that right now. You probably already messed up. So, as a plug, don't come to me to try and fix your kid because I can't. Just telling you that right now. Wednesdays is not going to fix your kid. Getting them involved in church, that may fix your kid. But, no, I'm just kidding. Getting them involved in church is not going to fix your kid. What's going to fix your kid is the Word of God. And let me also tell you something. Your kids, you don't get to decide where they're broken. Because you think you know them. But let me tell you something for sure. You, you, your parents probably thought they knew you, and you're like, they didn't know me. They didn't even know half the stuff I was doing. Don't, don't think it's any different with your kids. Don't think it's any different with them. Trust me. So there's a couple of verses I want to read from the New Testament. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And everything, that's Ephesians 6, 4, and everything set them an example by doing what is good. 
That's in Titus 2.7. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. I can do a whole preaching on that. I did a whole preaching on that for the youth. Uh, That's in Colossians 3.21. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That is your greatest joy. Not your kids running a business. Not your kids going to college. Not your kids doing anything. And it's tough because I have, I have, I have this, there's this stigma that they have to go to college. That that is the path to success. No, your kids, take this right now. College is great. Knowledge is great. What's more important is them being trained by the word of God. College is not going to save them. College is not the key to success. Sports is not the key to success. None of that, none of what the world offers is the key to success. Does it help? Can it help? Absolutely. Can it be a mission field? 100%. But your goal is to have no greater joy than to see them walking in truth. That should be your goal. So, I have a uh, question to leave you with, and then I want to invite some youth up here. Um, My question is, is God's word the ultimate authority in your household? Are you raising your children, or is Christ? Who's raising your kids? If it's not you, if it's not Christ, it's probably TikTok. Y'all think I'm kidding, but I'm serious. So, the most important thing is for you to instill the gospel in them. If the gospel is real, if it's your desire, if it's your belief, if it's your identity, it will be theirs. But if you got your high places just outside your core faith walls, it's going to seep in. And if it doesn't seep in with them, It'll keep seeping in until you got generational degradation. So get rid of your high places, and you can watch your kids get rid of theirs.